Good evening. Uh, Good to see you all here. Uh, I am not Madawi al-Rashid, unfortunately, <laughs> for all of us. Um, but I'm here to chair. Madawi, unfortunately, uh, has gotten whatever flu has been going around, so she won't be with us tonight. Um, but I'm here. I'm Courtney Freer. I'm a research officer at the Kuwait program here at the LSE. And I work on domestic politics of the Gulf, so I'm completely out of my depth here tonight, but looking forward to hearing from our speakers. So we'll go ahead and have them speak for about maybe 10 to 15 minutes. And then we'll go ahead and have question and answer period after that. Um, if you'd like to tweet at any time during the event, use the hashtag LSE images. Um, and so I guess I'll go ahead and introduce our speakers. We have Shireen Alfeki, who's the author of Sex in the Citadel, in an Intimate Life in a Changing Arab World. She's formerly a journalist with The Economist and a presenter with Al Jazeera. And Shireen is also a professor of global practice at the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto and an associate fellow at Chatham House. She's currently leading Im Images MENA, a pioneering study of men, masculinities, and gender equality across the Arab region. After she speaks, we'll hear from Joy Ayoub, who is a Lebanese writer, as well as a PhD student at the University of Edinburgh, researching the politics of post-war Lebanese cinema. In addition, he's the regional editor at Global Voices for the MENA region and founder of the blog Hummus for Thought. So I'll go ahead and let Shireen get started. Thanks for joining us. Right. Uh, many thanks, uh, Courtney, and my thanks to the LSE Middle East Center for hosting uh, tonight's uh, discussion. Um, it's one of the great, or actually one of the great, but also one of the many paradoxes of our region that men are the pillars of our patriarchies, but we actually know relatively little about what's happening in their personal lives, in their intimate lives, how they see their role in the world and the changing uh, position of uh, particularly women and girls uh, uh, around them. And one of the reasons for this relative lack of uh, research uh, into men and masculinities in the Arab region is because gender, as conventionally defined in our region, has distinctly female features. The vast majority of policies and programs and research is focused on women and girls, and, and rightly so, because women and girls are on the receiving end of constriction, regulation, control, whether at the level of law, at the level of society, or within the family. But if we want to engage men, if we want to bring them up to speed with a changing world of uh, gender roles and rights, then we do need to begin to speak to them to understand how they see the changing world around them. And in the absence of this information, there is a lot of speculation. And I'll give you just two examples. Some of you may recall the infamous uh, foreign policy a cover of 2012, Why Do They Hate Us?, which paints men as you know, basically misogynistic um, oppressors. Of, of women. Fast forward to uh, this year and last week, uh, Beatrix von Storch, a uh, deputy leader of the AfD, Alternative for Deutschland, um, released a tweet uh, castigating uh, the police in Cologne for daring to present a New Year's Eve greeting in Arabic, um, suggesting that or criticizing them for appeasing the brutal Muslim rapist hordes of men. So we have a lot of heat about men in and from our region, but not a lot of light, and this is the light. We call it IMAGES, the International Men and Gender Equality Survey in the Middle East and North Africa. 
Uh, images is a global study. It was created in 2008 by an NGO with which I work called Promundo, which is focused on engaging men and boys on questions of gender equality, including, uh, including the diminution of uh, sexual and gender-based violence. Uh, and Promundo works in about 20 countries around the world. And it was, the survey was created in conjunction with the International Center for Research on Women in DC. It is a multi-country, multi-year initiative to try to understand men's and women's attitudes and behaviors. It consists of a household survey and also companion qualitative research. And to date, the study has been done in more than 30 countries with uh, more than 60,000 male and female respondents. And this map just gives you uh, a sense of the breadth of, of the study, which has been done across the Americas, Sub-Saharan Africa, and Asia. And the countries we're going to be focusing on today are uh, Morocco, Egypt, um, Lebanon, and very tiny Palestine, uh, which is where the first wave of this study, uh, Images MENA, has been conducted. So in our survey, we talked to about 1,200 men and 1,200 women in uh, each country in the quantitative household survey, and then we talked to further samples in our qualitative research. As you can see uh, from this table, we had really high response rates. One of the concerns of our local research partners, because this, these surveys were conducted by researchers in country who come from the communities, was that, mm, will we be able to get men to talk? Our problem wasn't getting men to start talking, it was getting them to stop talking, basically. Um, and this is because in many cases they have never, ever been asked questions of, of this nature and trying to understand what is really happening in their lives. So that was a very gratifying and unexpected uh, uh, finding for our, our teams. The survey was conducted uh, between, the actual field work was done between April of last year, um, April 2016 and March 2017. Um, the standard images questionnaire, which has been fielded around the world, um, has a lot of uh, questions that uh, were not deemed suitable for the Arab region, either because of official government censorship uh, or the sensitivities that there was a feeling amongst the uh, research teams that they wouldn't be able to get honest answers in the setting of a household survey. For people who come from the region, who work in the region, you know these sensitive areas. These are the three red lines, uh, religion, politics, and especially sex. So a lot of these topics, particularly related to sexuality, we took out of the household survey and put into qualitative research, in-depth interviews, and focus group discussions. More interesting than the subjects we omitted were the new subjects that were introduced uh, in conjunction, in consultation with our local research partners, but also with local NGOs working on questions of gender roles and, and rights, the new topics that they really felt needed to be explored in depth with men and women in order to promote policy change and inform new programming on the ground. Among those topics were uh, we introduced a new module on uh, female genital mutilation in Egypt for the first time, talking to men not just about their attitudes towards FGM, but their involvement in decision-making around FGM. And there are some very interesting findings there, which I hope we can discuss later. 
we looked in, in Palestine, we looked in depth at the impact of a political occupation, a political, uh, political repression, occupation in Palestine and its connection, so the connection between sort of general and public violence and the connection to domestic violence. We looked at the effects of conflict in Lebanon, particularly amongst uh, Palestinian and Syrian refugee populations, how this, the experience of conflict and displacement had changed gender roles uh, within uh, families. We introduced new modules on marriage and divorce, on migration, on honor and honor-related violence, and also uh, on sexual harassment, sexual assault in public spaces. In Lebanon and Palestine, our samples, our 2,400 uh, people, were nationally representative samples with the limitation in Lebanon in that there is no census in Lebanon, and so it is very hard to understand what is truly nationally representative uh, in the country. In Egypt, we interviewed men and women in five urban and rural governorates. And in Morocco, we talked to men and women in one region, Rabat Saleh Kenitra, which generally represents the diversity of Morocco, with the exception that it's a slightly more urban population than the country as a whole. In every country, it's men interviewing men and women interviewing uh, women. Uh, and it's, we only ever talk to one respondent per household for clear ethical uh, reasons. Uh, in Egypt and Morocco, we used handheld computers to uh, collect the data, also in Lebanon. Uh, in Palestine, because of sensitivity around uh, computer uh, data collection and the occupation, we used paper questionnaires. And as I mentioned, in every country, we had qualitative research done. And the qualitative research differed from country to country. That was very much dictated by the local research partners and the topics of priority to them. Images is vast. It takes about an hour to complete the survey, and it is covering the lives of men and women in what we think to be almost 360-degree uh, perspective. We're looking at men's and women's support for gender equality in public and private life. We talk about household relations. What happened when you were a boy or a girl? What did your mother do in the house? What did your father do? Who made the decisions? What did you do as a son? What did you do as a daughter? How were your experiences as children different from, uh, from, from each other? We look at violence, the drivers and disruptors of gender-based violence in public and private spaces. We have modules on health and well-being. And we also look at stress, in particular, uh, the impact of displacement, conflict, and economic pressures on uh, men's uh, uh, psychological well-being. Huge amounts of data. This is just a snapshot, and um, very happy to pick up other points of interest in the Q&A session. Okay, so to begin, some, some of the data. One of the clear take-home messages from our study is just how much pressure these men are under. There is this impression that because of the patriarchy, it's fantastic for men. If you are at the top of the patriarchy, life is rather good in many countries in our region, and most of the people at the top of the patriarchy tend to be men. But down below are women and lots and lots of men. And for those men, who are not at the top of that pyramid, life is very tough, and this is what they, they told us. This data shows um, men who are responding yes to whether they are frequently stressed or depressed because of a lack of work or income. 
because, because they sometimes feel ashamed to face their family due to a lack of work or income, or they worry about providing their family with daily necessities. And as you'll see, the percentages who are really under the gun, as it were, are ranging from about 40% uh, in Egypt, uh, Morocco slightly less, but up to about half of men in Palestine. And in Palestine in particular, we did this survey in uh, the West Bank, uh, East Jerusalem, and also in, in Gaza. So we had a full range of experience uh, reflected, and these men are under pressure. This, this pressure manifests itself in different ways, but this is just one uh, reflection. Um, this is a uh, measure of depressive symptoms. We use a standardized uh, scale uh, from the WHO, and as you'll see, about a quarter of men are uh, actually qualifying as depressed according to this scale, and about half of, of women. And I have to say, I presented this data at Chatham House last year when an eminent Arab journalist uh, said to us, good heavens, only a quarter of men and half of women depressed? I call that a success. Uh, <laughs> but this is worrying, because also we ask questions about whom do you go to if you are feeling under pressure? And the women are mainly speaking to other women in the family, and the men are mainly speaking to their wives. But no one. Virtually no one is, is, is seeking external help because of a lot of the, um, the stigma associated with psychiatry and psychological treatment in our region. But again, these, these are men and women who are feeling the strain. Um, in each section, of, a thematic section of data that I'm going to present to you, I'm going to take a deep dive into one country. These questions were asked in all countries, but this is just to show you uh, in particular for here in Lebanon. I mean, this is really quite alarming. When we asked men, do you fear for your safety? Do you, do you fear for your family's safety? Do you worry about the future for yourself and your family? Basically, all men. All men are anxious. And this was true, as a, this was true in, in, on, in the three other countries in which, we did this, in which we did this survey. And this data in Lebanon is a composite of Syrian refugees and also <coughs> Lebanese nationals. But when we disaggregated the data, they were both feeling the, the pressure. And in the qualitative uh, studies, we also uh, add nuance to these numbers. And this is a quotation from a Lebanese man in one of our focus group discussions when he was talking about what happens to men when they can't get jobs, which is a problem for many men, particularly younger men in our region, because of the double-digit unemployment levels, you know, which have a, number of, uh, of, of, have had a number of consequences, including the uprisings of the Arab Spring. But this Lebanese man said, when a man doesn't have work, he becomes like a tissue, very easily breakable. In normal times, he is like steel. But when he cannot fulfill his duties, he becomes very fragile. So they're clear, these men are clearly feeling the pressure in private life. So what's happening, how, does this, how is this reflected in their attitudes towards gender roles and rights in the public domain? So we ask a wide range of questions to try to gauge uh, attitudes towards gender equality. And this, is, uh, this slide just shows two of them. On the, on the left, you see, uh, the, we're asking about support for this statement. The idea that men and women are equal is not part of our traditions and culture. And as you say, majorities of, of men on the left and also majorities of, of women believe that this is not something which is an indigenous part of, of their country's uh, social, social uh, traditions. 
But when we ask uh, on the right-hand side, more rights for women mean that men lose out, it's quite interesting. More than 50% of men simply disagree with that. They don't see more rights for women as a zero-sum game, basically. And this is very important because it do actually does show that there is room to maneuver. There is room. There is, there are, there is openness to, to change and to con be considering other ways of, 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 of gender roles and rights. And you'll see this in the data in many places, that it's a mixed bag. On one hand, we have what seem to be quite conservative attitudes, but on the other hand, there are very surprisingly, surprisingly open attitudes uh, as well. Right, this, um, this is a series of questions. It's part of a much larger collection of questions, which we use to calculate something called the gender equitable men's scale, the so-called GEM scale, which is a measure of openness towards gender equality. The important thing here is not the particular questions, but just a point I want to draw out. And, and the message here is that it's not just men who are propping up the patriarchy, it's women as well. And I'll show you just, it would give you two examples. If you look at the bottom line, it's a man's duty to exercise guardianship over his female relatives. And you look to the far right, which is Palestine. So 80% of men agree with this, but almost two-thirds of women are also in agreement. And if you look at the top, a woman's most important role is to take care of the home and cook for the family. You know, a whopping 87% of men think that's a jolly good idea. Um, but also three-quarters of women are, are in agreement with, with that. Here you'll see what really comes to the crux of some of the issues related to gender equality in the public domain. Over on the left... We ask the question, if resources are scarce, it is more important to educate sons than daughters. As you know, we've had tremendous success in many countries, in most countries in the Arab region, in getting women into a formal education. And in some parts of our region, I'm sure Courtney, Courtney can speak to this, in the Gulf states, we actually have more women in higher education than we have men, and women are doing better in school, in, in education. And as you see, this is reflected in this data. The majority of men actually have no problem they don't prioritize boys' education over girls' education. The problem is when you try to transfer, or transfer education into employment. So if you look on the right, this is one of the standard questions that's also asked in the World Value Survey. When work opportunities are scarce, men should have access to jobs before women. Yes, well, 98% of men in Egypt are in agreement uh, with, with that, but also strong majorities in most of our countries of women also believe this to be the case. And this lies at the heart of what was called the employment paradox in the Arab region. Again, we have these very high rates of female uh, education, but only about a quarter on average of women across our region are in the formal work, workforce. And that's, if you compare that to the global, the average for the global south of 40%, we are really lagging behind. And there are many reasons for that, but some of them are down to these sort of attitudes. We, again, we asked in every country about the role of women as leaders in society. And Morocco is an interesting uh, example uh, because, of course, they've seen a lot of legal change since 2004 and the reform of their family law code um, for women, instituting women's, women's rights. So when we ask men and women, for example, there should be more women in positions of political authority, uh, women are too emotional to be leaders. Uh, a woman with the same qualifications can do as good a job as a man. The men are very supportive of women in, in public space. 
Um, I have to, I should point out, we also asked uh, men if they would, how comfortable they feel working with women as lower level uh, colleagues at the same level. And more than 50% of men actually said that they would accept to work with a female boss, which was really quite surprising, although I, it's possible that in their minds, that's about as likely as, I don't know, Egypt win winning the World Cup. Um, but, but still, there is an openness to seeing women in positions of authority. But it's a balancing act because on the one hand, while they say that they're, they're open towards this, towards this empowerment, on the other hand, they feel a tension with what is happening in private life. And to give you an example here, a man in his 20s, a student uh, near Rabat said, to be honest, it's rare to find a real man. The man has lost his masculinity with these new laws that give more advantages and freedom to women. And from women, we heard the complexity the, 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 the contradiction they saw between having this change in the public domain and how it really wasn't really translating into private life. And this is from a woman who's 30 years old, who's a teacher in Rabat. Honestly, the rhetoric on the rights of women, nothing like that exists. It's only talk. In Moroccan families and households, we still live by tradition. We have a culture that can't be remade in a moment. We, as I mentioned, we had an extensive series of questions looking at violence in the public and private space, and here's some of this data. We looked at violence in childhood, and what was interesting is that we uncovered just the, the, the very high levels of violence that not just women are experiencing, but also men. And if you look at this slide, this is showing data uh, when we talked to respondents of whether they had experienced at least one of three acts of physical violence, which includes shoving, pushing, beating, beating with an object, um, at home uh, before the age of 18. And it's really quite, really quite remarkable. You're, you're looking at more than half of men who have experienced physical violence at home. And when we talked to them about violence in schools, it was really terrifying. Up to 80% of men in some countries said that they had been beaten by a teacher. And this data has real implications because when we look further on at the prevalence or the likelihood to committing uh, domestic violence, intimate partner violence, or sexual harassment, it was the men who had experienced violence in childhood who were more likely to go on to be violent towards their partners in adulthood. Again, not a unique finding in the Arab region, uh, but nonetheless a, a disturbing one. When we looked at spousal control, so we asked uh, men uh, do, you, do you want to know where your wife is all the time? Do you, do you control uh, what she wears? Do you control when she goes out and when you have sexual relations? And basically 100% of men said they control everything. <laughs> and again, not a uniquely Arab finding. Um, but, but it's interesting, and the women also agreed agreed with this, like this level of spousal control. But what was interesting is when we started talking about some of the nuance of household decision-making, for example, who decides whether you, you know, who, the, the sons get married, the girls get married, the children go to school, um, who decides on major purchases in the household. The men basically said, well, we make the decisions. And the women said, well, hmm. Um, they, they said, you know, we actually, we actually make the decisions, but very often we presented in a way that he thinks he has made the, 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 the decision. And, and I know this from my own family. My grandmother very much, my Egyptian grandmother was very much in, in control of the household, but she made it seem as if my grandfather 
was, was calling the shots. And my, my Egyptian grandmother used to have a, had, she had many, many uh, proverbs, most of which I can't actually cite here because um, they are a little um, uh, robust. Um, but, but one of them is, a, a, a clever woman can spin yarn with a donkey's thigh bone. Um, by that meaning that women can get what they want, they just have to go about it in a rather uh, more circuitous way. Um, but, you know, this, this, this spousal control is translating into some very serious, alarming rates of, of, of domestic violence. Now here we're looking at, we're using standard scales, looking at different types of intimate partner violence, uh, different types of physical violence, emotional violence, sexual violence, and economic violence. I'm just presenting two sets, uh, two sets here. Um, and I also need to point out that in other parts of the world in which images has been conducted, we uh, ask questions of unmarried uh, people as well. Um, that was just not on the cards in the Arab region. We couldn't get permission to do that. Um, so when we talk about intimate partner here, we're talking about spouses. But if you look on the left-hand side, the, this is uh, looking at the percentage of ever married men and women who uh, either have uh, perpetrated or experienced at least one form of spousal uh, violence. And these rates in Egypt, for example, are extremely high. I mean, these are some of the highest rates we've seen. These are close to the rates that we've been seeing in some uh, conflict-afflicted uh, uh, countries in, in Central Africa. So there's clearly, uh, cl clearly problems at, at home in terms of physical uh, spousal violence. And if you look over here on emotional violence, those, those levels are through the roof in some of our countries. Um, we also looked at sexual harassment, uh, clearly a topic of considerable interest both uh, at home in the region but also abroad. Um, this is the percentage of uh, men uh, who have committed uh, types of sexual harassment against women and women who have experienced it. And as you see in Egypt and Morocco, for example, the men, he said, she said, is fairly closely aligned. Uh, in Egypt in particular, uh, about 60-65% of men and women have either perpetrated or experienced uh, um, street-based uh, violence. And to give you a sense of the, some of the qualitative uh, work that we did on this, uh, this is a quote from a woman who living in Cairo. She's in her late 20s. She said, my husband beat me. When I complained to his family, they said, what do you expect? Do you want him to take his frustration out on people on the street or in his home? You should tolerate your husband. But my brothers got angry and kept me in my parents' home and said that I should not go home to him. I stayed three months with my mother until my husband realized his mistake and understood that by beating me, he had lost his wife and children. But even then, when his mother came to visit, she tried to convince him that I was wrong. She expects me to be a sponge that soaks up his anger and frustration. So in the interest of time, I'll just uh, conclude here. And as I said, we look forward to discussing these findings further. But just to give you some sort of overarching themes from uh, this survey. Men at work. It's very clear that men are defining themselves first and foremost as breadwinners, and the women in their lives are defining them as such. And when they can't reach that, uh, that milestone, when they can't attain uh, that, uh, that, sense of, that sense of self, it's bubbling over into frustration. Like father, like son. As I said, the importance of fatherhood in shaping attitudes and practices. I mentioned a little bit about the boys who had experienced violence, uh, who went on to perpetrate it. But interestingly, the flip side is also true. The men who were more likely to share decision-making with, uh, with their wives or were willing to get their hands dirty 
in, term, in doing traditionally female tasks like cooking and cleaning. These are the ones who had seen their fathers do, do the same with, with their mothers. The fairer sex, as I mentioned, women's attitudes in our survey were often as or more conservative than those of men. And those in particular were related to control of their own sexuality. So to give you just one example, in the uh, sexual harassment data, we also asked for motivations for uh, sexual harassment, uh, and we asked about attitudes towards sexual harassment. And one of the standard questions that's asked is that women who are provocatively dressed uh, deserve to be harassed. Well, about three-quarters of men in Egypt uh, agreed with that statement, but almost 90% of women also believe that to be the case. So there's a lot of uh, self-regulation uh, or in, in, as evinced in, in this survey uh, by women as relates to their own sexuality. One of the most interesting findings in our survey is what we call the youth gap. Almost everywhere else in the world, world that we've done images, when we look at young men's attitudes, all those questions I showed about the gender equitable men's scale, young men are more open on women's roles and rights than their than older generations, except in the Arab region, where we found that younger men were as or even more conservative than older men, but younger women were more open than their mothers and grandmothers. So we have a situation in which young men are moving in one direction and young women are moving uh, in, in, in the other uh, to be discussed in the Q&A. Uh, the gap between attitudes and actions very often we found, particularly in the qualitative work, there were indeed men who were, who were actually breaking the mold and uh, engaged in childcare and uh, in domestic, uh, domestic uh, work, uh, contrary to the prevailing uh, gender norms. But in many cases, these men were not doing it out of some sort of grand ideological stance on gender equality. They were doing it because they have to because circumstances have dictated this. And in particular, this was true of Syrian uh, refugee men whom we, uh, whom we interviewed, who just had found their world completely upended because in displacement, it had actually turned out to be easier for the women folk, as it were, their wives and their daughters, to actually go out and get small jobs and that they were left at, at home to pick, up the, uh, to, 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 to pick up the slack there. The tension between the public and the private so as I mentioned, very often men and women would talk, ab get, talk about their support for changes in laws and practices related to gender equality, but also in particular the women wondering, well, what good is this doing me at home? If great, I can go out and I work all day, and then I come home and I work all night because my husband isn't doing anything. I have to bear this double burden. And to give you an, an illustration of the public versus private divide, um, there was an Egyptian woman who said to us, Yes, in our household, um, my husband does the laundry because uh, we've just got this new washing machine and it's very shiny and it's very expensive and it's very technical. So he does the washing, but he never puts the laundry out to dry because it's the line that's on the balcony and then the neighbors would see. So it's a very personal, <laughs> it's a very personal illustration of what we are seeing across the board, this gap between the public and the private. Finally, you know, many men and women in our study talked about what they called to be, what they said was the crisis of masculinity. That basically we know that the old models aren't working anymore, but we're not sure where we're heading. But we actually prefer to think of it as a crossroads because it is very clear that there is at least a minority of men, about 30 to 40%, and on any given issue are thinking differently, acting differently, and they are the cornerstone of, the ch of change. And 
now that we've done this survey under the aegis of UN Women, the study, the study findings are now being translated into practice by NGOs across the region that are now starting to engage with men and boys where they once only worked with women and girls. And I want to conclude with just one example of that sort of engagement. Um, this is a uh, commercial that went out on Egyptian TV based on the images uh, data around the launch of our study in Egypt. Um, it was picked up by Mohamed Saleh and uh, tweeted to the world. So it's actually gained some traction in the Arab region. Um, it's in Arabic with subtitles, so I'll play it now. Uh, no, I won't. Um, finally, um, the study in its full 300-page Technicolor Splendor is uh, available at this website, imagesmena.org. Many thanks. Thank you so much. Um, Joey, I'll let you go ahead and get started. Yes. Yeah? Uh, is it okay if I do it from here? Yeah. yeah. Okay, hi. Can you hear me? Yes. So hi, so my name is Joey Ayoub, and unfortunately for you, I will be talking about Lebanon. Um, so I'm going to try and, and do this. I've basically written a short short essay-ish, uh, and hopefully like in the Q&A, we can expand on some of the things that I don't uh, expand upon here. So uh, a few days ago, a video was published on Facebook by a well-known activist, and the video show, showed uh, soldiers, Lebanese soldiers, all of them male, beating unarmed and kneeling Syrian men, uh, quite a few of whom were actually uh, stripped from the waist up, and essentially mocking them, humiliating them. Uh, on the faces of the soldiers, you can really see a sort of joy that was, they were actually having fun, and a sort of joy that I guess you can get out of a sense of power and domination. Uh, one of the Syrian men actually had a smiley drawn on his back, kind of to add humiliation to the to the experience, if you want. Uh, the video was shot in the summer of 2017, uh, which was it's, it was basically following a uh, there were two, I think, uh, suicide attacks that killed a number of Lebanese soldiers, and essentially, the in response, if you can call it that way, there have been a wave of violence against random Syrian men of of the streets by Lebanese men. So it's a sort of wave of hyper-masculine, if we can call it that again, ultra-nationalism, which was mixed with the usual xenophobia that is very, very present in Lebanon. 
and it even made um, the idea of expelling all Syrian refugees uh, pretty much mainstream for at least a, a certain period of time. Many people denounced these videos, as they should, uh, but few were those who pointed out that the violence inflicted on the, on, on the Syrian men, uh, because again, they were not necessarily top-bottom, it wasn't necessarily encouraged, although you can argue that it is also that. Uh, it's really many Lebanese men took it upon themselves to essentially find random Syrian men, film them, and you know, upload it on Facebook uh, or, or elsewhere, YouTube. Uh, not just like many people did not really point out the fact that these, this sort of violence did not just find its roots in a sort of hyper um, quasi-racial or racist, if you want, sense of superiority, uh, reflective of the otherwise fragile sense of national nationalism that you, you 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 have quite prominently in Lebanon, but also of the of the idea of masculinity in Lebanon. So the topic of the topic of Lebanese masculinity um, has not, as far as I can see, been widely studied. But there are some quite decent studies, uh, nonetheless. I picked just one. Um, it's, an, it's an essay written by uh, Sun Hagbol, a scholar, and the essay is called The Little Militiaman, Memory and Militarized Masculinity in Lebanon. In this essay, she speaks of how Lebanese artists, specifically, they sought, they, they sought to um, present a redemptive uh, narrative on former militiamen. So as most of you, I think, would know, Lebanon had a pretty brutal civil war between 1975 and 1990. So it's these militiamen that she's talking about. Um, showing them as regretful, even feminized, and quote-unquote little men, on par, almost basically equal, uh, um, putting them on the same level as actual victims of the war, during the war. Um, this is meant that what the artists were trying to do, according to, to, to Hogball, and I quote, was to s sever the link between masculinity and sectarian cultures that still today celebrate violence committed during the Civil War. So uh, the celebration of violence, in other words, uh, as an, being as an inherent part of masculinity remains widespread in Lebanon, particularly as narratives from and on the Civil War uh, remain unaddressed at the national level. Uh, some even more context. After all, this is a country, Lebanon is a country where the, the former warlords, pretty much every single one of them, uh, who are still alive, are still in complete control of the country today in politics. These include our current president, the Speaker of Parliament, many of our MPs, and many leaders of political parties who often uh, either seek out Iran's approval or seek out Saudi Arabia's approval. And I think uh, we don't need to get into how uh, these respective countries and their record on women's rights. Um, in addition, uh, Lebanon has never had a sort of truth and reconciliation committee um, like South Africa, for example. Uh, so uh, the estimated 17,000 forcibly disappeared, uh, mostly men of fighting age, uh, have yet to be accounted for. And as most of the disappeared were men of fighting age, as I said, most of the activists uh, seeking out their uh, discourse, trying to find out what happened to them, tend to be women. What I just said, and I have to apologize because it's going to be quite bleak, but then there's a sort of less bleak in the end. <laughs> uh, so this contradicts the way Lebanon is often portrayed um, in relation to the Arab world and often by Lebanese themselves. They would, I think we, we quite enjoy saying that. Uh, namely th being that of a you know, progressive or relatively progressive liberal beacon and a sea of conservatism or whichever, whatever. 
Um, on the surface, uh, even if you see some of the results in images, I think you, you notice some of the disparities. They, they seem to point towards that. Um, and I'm not saying it's completely untrue. There is the us. There have been some improvements. But, um, so to give one example, 75% of men in Lebanon think that there should be w more women in positions of political authority, and only 26% only of men in Lebanon agree with the notion that the women should tolerate violence to keep the violence together. If you want to contrast this with Egypt, then yeah, you can say you know things are slightly better. The problem is that if you actually see at politics in Lebanon, uh, things tend to be, again, much bleaker. So how can we explain that out of the 128 uh, members of parliament, only four of them are women? And it's actually worse than that because out of these four women, three of them are relatives of male politicians. <laughs> Can I just point out also that the Minister for Women of Women's uh, Affairs is a man. Is a man. <laughs> and, a, and a former general, no less. Yes. So, and so the, the three out of four are relatives of male politicians, and the fourth is the only female MP of her party. Um, so I had to read the details of the report because that kind of, it, it rang you know, sort of an alarm in my head. Um, and indeed, in the report, once you actually read uh, everything, this, this is the quote. When asked about their support for women in various public positions, men were most likely to express support for women as heads of non-governmental organizations, NGOs, and least likely to express support for women as religious leaders, heads of political parties, heads of states, and military officers. Basically, you know, you can have some power, but not where it, you can actually change things, when it actually matters. Uh, and indeed, um, I found, I mean, this is a quite a popular, uh, popular, a famous report um, by Human Rights Watch in 2015, and it's entitled Unequal and Unprotected Women's Rights Under Lebanese Personal Status Laws. So Lebanese personal status laws is something that is not only in Lebanon, there are other countries in the Arab world that have that, but in Lebanon it's, it's quite something. Um, so essentially there's no unified civil code that affects, that regulates personal status matters adoption, divorce, marriage, etc. Um, instead, we have 15 separate person status laws, uh, basically accounting for the, the recognized religious communities in Lebanon. Um, so when hum unsurprisingly, when Human Rights Watch reviewed 447 legal judgments issued by these various religious courts, it found uh, a clear pattern of women from all sects <laughs> being treated worse than men when it comes to accessing divorce and primary care for their that, for that children, among, among other things. Uh, then I, I actually said I would also recommend a report called uh, Zelfa's Questions on the Personal Status Law by the feminist NGO CAFA, uh, which goes into the details of every sect and how it works, basically. Uh, furthermore, and, and Shireen mentioned this, it's actually important to know that surveys in Lebanon can be very, very tricky to do because we have not had an official census since 1932. And 1932 is nine years before the actual independence. So we have not had any census, if you want, of, of the actual Republic of Lebanon. Um, and to give one very, very like, uh, drastic example of how this data or lack of data can affect things, the first official uh, census of Palestinian refugees in Lebanon was done just a few weeks, I mean, released just a few weeks ago. And it found that there are 174,000 approximately Palestinians in Lebanon which is a very, very different number than the official numbers that is often given, which is 500,000 Palestinians in Lebanon. And the number of 500,000 is actually very significant because that is the number that Lebanese politicians often like to use to sort of warn 
against uh, making Syrians feel, quote-unquote, too comfortable, i.e., you know, the same thing can happen, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that being said, data, even if incomplete, I don't want to seem like I'm trashing, I'm not, please don't be, even if incomplete, matters. Uh, one of the main problems facing activists in Lebanon today is basically that we just don't know the full extent of pretty much anything that we're trying to tackle. Uh, when data is compiled, we can push for change. I remember, uh, just as a brief anecdote, during my undergrad studies, being shocked to hear that uh, there's an estimate one suicide per week uh, among migrant domestic workers in Lebanon, and that the actual numbers would obviously be much higher because those are the recorded ones or the documented ones. So I had known that the situation was quite bad. It's, it's not, it doesn't take much to see this. Um, but actually hearing one suicide per week really affected me, and this is how I started on my, uh, my own, in the beginning, becoming more active. So images in that respect can actually help uh, folks on the ground uh, who are trying to change things. And speaking of migrant domestic workers, you mentioned this in the previous talk, um, and I'll, I'll end on this point, and you know, in the Q&A we can take it uh, further. Um, Migrant domestic workers in Lebanon are an inev inevitable part of gender relations because out of the 250,000, the overwhelming majority of them are women uh, from countries such as Ethiopia, Sri Lanka, uh, the Philippines, etc. Uh, and the houses where they live, they would be the ones, uh, and I can say this from personal experience and from most of the folks that I know who are middle class or upper class, uh, they would be the ones performing quote-unquote traditional feminine uh, household tasks and their role in Lebanese uh, society even has the potential to threaten the status quo as well, and this is often not, not talked about. So to use a brief case uh, in point, in 2015, uh, the domest a, a domestic workers' union was announced um, in January, I think, of 2015. Um, and this is in a, uh, a country that uh, does not guarantee uh, proper labor laws. Lebanon has not signed on to the Convention Number 87 of the ILO, the International Labor Organization, which guarantees the freedom of association or, and the protection of the right to, to organize without the permission of the government. So the Lebanese government rejected it, even though they fit, uh, they, they, uh, they met all of the requirements, the legal requirements. I mention this because migrant domestic workers, who again are often most overwhelmingly women, are often excluded from, from national narratives of, on women's rights due to their origin, their race, their class, combination of the three of them. Uh, this is the f despite the fact that, according to the ILO, uh, domestic workers are among the global workforces most vulnerable to violence and abuse because they simply have less resources at their hands and because often the abuse would, would happen behind closed doors. Uh, and in countries like Lebanon, we have something called the kafala system, which is the sponsorship system, uh, which essentially puts the legal status of um, the migrant domestic worker in the complete hands of the family. Uh, the Lebanese state has repeatedly targeted migrant domestic workers, uh, some might say even obsessively. Uh, in the summer of 2016, it, it detained and deported 21 migrant domestic worker women uh, for the crime of having children in Lebanon. As women, in other words, they are viewed by, by the state, uh, by a state that's so reliant on sectarianism, on patriarchy and racism as demographic threats. And I know this is something that we often hear about our lovely neighbors in the south, but this happens also in Lebanon. Uh, and other, like their very womanhood, if you want, is illegal, is made illegal. Um, and others were deported simply for being too active. So uh, in December of 2016, Lebanon marked International Human Rights Day by deporting a well-known uh, Nepalese activist called Sujana Rana, 
who was involved in the, in the founding of the union that I mentioned. And no official reason, obviously, was given for her arrest and deportation. There's still no official reason today. Um, the reason why I'm saying, uh, so I'm sorry, as I said, it's bleak, but it's, it, there are, there is, there are uh, hopes uh, along the way, whichever, whatever the expression is. Um, it's important to know, to know that it's really only because of the work of you know, intersectional feminists and anti-racists and lawyers, et cetera, on the ground, um, that we even hear about these things. Uh, activists who are not just Lebanese, but also non-Lebanese as well. Uh, this, so as I mentioned, the union was, was, was um, announced two years ago uh, with the presence of 300 domestic, as in not migrant, and migrant domestic workers. Um, and they continue to struggle to gain recognition. They're still technically not legal to this day. And this is in addition to the... Um, you know, many obvious uh, structural issues that they might have, and many women, uh, migrant domestic worker women, uh, cannot leave the house except on Sundays, you know, lots of things already, lots of problems to organize, and it, a multilingual workforce, etc. So I mentioned this, again, not with the intention of painting a bleak picture of Lebanon, but rather just as a recognition of the things that were achieved so far. Uh, just this summer, uh, we saw a, a, uh, a, a victory, if you want, the Lebanese parliament finally repealed the infamous rape law, uh, which exempted a rapist from punishment if he married his victim. And that law, according to UN Women, I checked it today to make sure, is still in effect in Iraq, Kuwait, Libya, Bahrain, Palestine, and Syria. Uh, this law is not perfect. There are quite lots of loopholes within it, and that's important to, to note. It can actually still be applied if you use different articles, but basically they made it a bit harder to be applied. Um, so I'll stop at this. And yeah, I guess this is quite a lot already. Continue. Thank you so much. That was a really comprehensive overview. Um, and then a fascinating deep dive into Lebanon, which, you know, when you live in the Gulf, you see it as kind of this liberal paradise, but it's um, depressing and <laughs> interesting to know that it's, it's not that way. And I, I'm looking forward to hearing uh, also when images goes in. I know you're in Kuwait now doing some work. Um, yeah, so um, uh, we're, we're um, moving into the second wave of, of the study, and uh, surprisingly the first country which has actually invited us to come and do images is, is Kuwait. So, I mean, a question to you, to you Courtney, because you've worked in, 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 in Kuwait. When the time I've spent in Kuwait to date has shown me that there's quite an active women's movement, but on the other side, I mean, we have active women's movements in many of our countries, but there are also, I've met a large number of men who are actually willing to countenance change. What, what's, what's in Kuwait that, might, that makes it different? I, I think the parliament is, is one big thing in, in, the Gulf, in Kuwait. I mean, it's, it's very active and it has enough power in Kuwait. It's also something that is, Kuwaitis are quite proud of. So I think there's this idea that Kuwaiti activism matters, that this is something they're freer to do than, say, uh, Saudis, um, for instance. So I think that's, that's this kind of uh, spirit of civic activism is present in Kuwait, where you haven't seen it before. Um, there was an active Arab nationalist movement there prior to, um, to uh, in independence, and also kind of there's more of a history of it in Kuwait, I'd say. Um, that said, there's only you know one female MP in the Kuwaiti Parliament, so uh, Safa Al Hashem, and she's often lambasted as being kind of uh, a Trump of Kuwait. She's very uh, populistic, very anti-expat. So then people point to her as you know. You know, a, a problem with having women in parliament. So it's it's difficult. Um, but in any case, I mean, I think it'll be also interesting looking at, you know, you talked a lot about the economic pressures on men in places like Egypt. And so when you move to Kuwait, obviously you have less of this. You have more of a guarantee of a public sector job. So 
So to give you just a sense of the challenges of taking images on the road, so we, we have questions which are trying to assess the socio-demographic characteristics of our respondents, and we calculate something called a wealth index. So we ask questions in Egypt, you know, do you have a refrigerator, do you have a mobile phone? In Kuwait, we have to ask questions, how many cars do you have? <laughs> Uh, outside, and, and when we ask in Egypt, do you do agricultural work? In, in Kuwait, that translates, do you have a chalet? Do you have stables? Um, so it is an, it is an interesting uh, environment. Uh, it's a very, you know, clearly very, for some, very privileged. Um, and yet there are limitations because in Kuwait, in our survey, we are going to be surveying Kuwaiti nationals. We will not be surveying... Uh, for example, uh, migrant uh, migrant workers. Yeah, I was going to ask about that because it's it's a bit, the picture in Kuwait is a bit different from Lebanon in that the majority are men, um, so you have this mm. different different demographic profile. Um, but anyway, um, we'll go ahead and open it up to to you to the audience for questions. So if you can just state your name, affiliation, and a brief question, not a summary of your thesis, uh, that would be great. And wait for the <laughs> microphone to come around. Uh, yes, sir. Hi, I'm Martin Hetherington from the Foreign Office. I had the pleasure of hosting Shireen a couple of years ago to talk about uh, sex and the Citadel, so I'm very happy to, uh, to be here tonight. Um, I think three questions, actually, one for each of the, uh, the people on the panel. Firstly, um, Courtney, on Kuwait, was there any lasting influence? When you talk about there being historical sort of uh, women's movement and civil society in Kuwait, I know there was some very Western-backed pressure in 1990-91 on the Kuwaiti government to undertake some reforms after the liberation from Iraq because it was a sort of a political tension and embarrassment maybe that, um, that, that so much sort of money, blood and effort had been put into liberating quite a conservative society and that there maybe was some external pressure on Kuwait and I wonder whether that, is, that had any kind of lasting effect or whether it was purely cosmetic at the time. Um, on Lebanon, I wondered whether... Um, Beirut Medinity, whether the new election law, whether sort of some of the civil society pressure around that might actually open up the elections when they come. And um, Shireen, on the female gen genital mutilation, I'd be interested on the data, particularly this idea of whether women are more conservative, whether women are the decision makers and things like that, how that came out as well. Um, great. I guess we can go ahead and take that quickly. Um, as far as the question about Kuwait, um, I think... The, the pressure in the 90s had to do specifically with the fact that Parliament had been dissolved in 86 and hadn't been reinstated. Um, and actually prior to uh, pressure from the Americans, there was a lot of domestic pressure inside of Kuwait. There was the, the constitutional movement, which gathered itself in Diwaniyat throughout Kuwait, uh, pressuring the government to return Parliament. So I think it was much more grassroots than just um, pressured from the outside. Uh, on the question of Beirut Medinity, yeah, uh, we also have upcoming elections in a few months, if, <laughs> if they let us have them. Uh, but assuming they happen, um, we're hoping that there would be also different coalitions kind of modeling themselves on what Beirut Medinity did. Uh, so those, for those who don't know, Beirut Medinity was a fairly liberal slash progressive to a certain extent uh, coalition uh, during the municipal elections in Beirut, uh, 2016, some of 2016, I think. Um, Beirut Medinati in itself, uh, many would argue, and I would agree with that, that it wouldn't have happened without what happened the summer before, the Youth Think movement. And that would not have happened without things before it. So it's, in Lebanon, it sort of works in waves, in a way. So it, lots of ups and lots of downs. We're hoping that, you know, next elections, we would see more ups than downs. 
it's not easy. Uh, Beirut Medinati had to essentially fight against lit pretty, almost literally every single uh, mem po uh, political parties. They actually, the political parties who are opposed to one another actually, uh, you know, teamed up to 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 defeat Beirut Medinati. And the only reason why they were defeated um, is because there's a winner-take-all system in Lebanon. If there was more of a proportion system, I think they got. 35 or 40, something like this, percent of the votes, which is which pretty significant because they were only organized for like months beforehand. So, yeah, hopefully better in the future. So to begin, uh, thank you, Martin, for that fantastic session we had at the FCO. I'm not sure if the FCO has talked about sex so frankly since the Profumo affair. So it was uh, great to get into the nitty-gritty uh, with your colleagues. Um, on female circ uh, circumcision FGM, uh, so for those of you who are not familiar with the situation in Egypt, uh, about 92% of women aged 15 to 49 ever married are circumcised in, in Egypt. It's one of the highest rates in the world. Um, if we look at um, sort of the bellwether group of, of young women aged uh, 15 to 17, uh, the rates now are 67%. It's high, clearly, but the rates are, are declining in Egypt. And that's largely thanks to decades of campaigning um, that has gone on in, in, in the country. And the fruit of those campaigns is reflected in some of our, our data. So when we asked men and women, do you support FGM, uh, just over 50% of women uh, approve of the practice. And again, that's a significant decline over national surveys that have been done over the past couple of decades. Uh, ours is one of the first surveys to talk to men about FGM, as I mentioned, and about 70% of men in our survey thought that FGM uh, was, uh, was a, a suitable and appropriate uh, practice. And many of them um, cited uh, customs and tradition for continuing FGM, uh, that it's uh, about 70% also thought that it was required by religion despite uh, decades of statements from uh, both Muslim and Christian authorities uh, to the contrary. So it's, cl it, it's clear that so the campaigning is having an effect because the campaigns were directed towards women and girls. The problem we have is that for the very first time we asked who is actually making the decisions in your family about FFGM. And uh, what we found interestingly is that uh, about two-thirds of, uh, of men said yes, we are involved. We, are, we, we have the final say along with the women in our family about uh, whether our girls are circumcised or not, and two-thirds of the women agreed that the men of the family were engaged in the decisions. So there's a clear policy implication here because now it is time to think about bringing the, uh, the campaigns and the discussion and of actively engaging men in this because it hasn't been done before and this is the fruit of it. Um, and again, the, the data from images is also translating quite quickly into policy change. So in Lebanon, interestingly, in uh, just last month, the cabinet um, uh, passed a measure, which will go to par parliament eventually, um, to uh, now allow at least three days of paternity leave. Um, and this was partially based on the data from images which showed that up to 80% of men in Lebanon actually wanted to see at least one and up to, up to six weeks of, of paternity leave. So as you mentioned, the data, however imperfect, is important for those who are pushing, pushing for change. Thank you. Omar uh, Ghazi, I'm an assistant professor in the media um, department here at LSE. 
Um, I have um, two questions, one for um, Shireen and one for Joey. Um, Shireen, I wanted to, I was interested in the public-private um, aspect and um, thinking about it methodologically in terms of, you know, having a man ask another man about um, his, um, the rights of, um, of his wife and the relationship, the spousal relationship, would you consider that also within the context of a public admittance um, that may breach the kind of uh, image of masculinity of, of that man. And I would imagine that even, you know, a detail of, of how the interview, interviewer looks like or, you know, what, uh, what kind of m uh, projection of masculinity does he have might even influence the insecurity of the um, interviewee. Um, and, uh, Joey, I wanted to, since you are um, a prominent uh, social media activist, if you think about, like, that gender aspect on social media, yeah. um, like, do you, do you have um, experience in terms of, or do, do you think about, like, that kind of masculinity in, in the way that people engage on, um, on social media, <laughs> or men engage? Thank you for your comments. My name is Farah, and I'm doing a master's here uh, in women, peace, and security. Um, my question is for you, Dr. Shireen. Um, I'm interested in how sometimes organizations will filter um, information or say, if, for instance, Palestinian women will report on the occupation and what it's done to them, but then World Health Organization decides to ignore the occupation part and report only on the parts that are palatable for their audiences. So I'm wondering, did you come across any uh, such repo reporting and were there you know, categories that were outside of the ones that were preset by the partner organization? So for example, violence, uh, health, stress, et cetera. Are there topics that came up outside of those? Thank you. Uh, should we take one more? Uh, yes, ma'am. Hello, uh, my name is Fatima. I work as an assistant for Jeremy Corbyn. Um, and just thank you so much, by the way. This is really fascinating study. Um, one thing that really interested me the most was how men define their masculinity in relation to uh, being able to work. And so in terms of policy recommendation, that's what my question is about. How effective are campaigns sort of targeting views about women etc like the campaign that you showed us how effective are they if you're not addressing the underlying causes of economic disparity political disenfranchisement so democratization for example should we not have sort of campaigns working alongside these gender focused campaigns i don't know if that made sense so i hope so oh uh, yeah um, so social media, um, yeah, you, you do see that being sorry, you do see that being played out a lot. Um, so the, the, I mean, the video that I mentioned, uh, I mean, the videos of Lebanese men filming themselves and stuff. That's I don't know how common or uncommon it is, but as far as I can see, it's not rare. Let's put it this way. Um, beyond that, there is a certain for, like when it comes to Lebanon, social media is both in Arabic and in English. Uh, for better or worse. Uh, so it's, it does sometimes create a disconnect between communities, uh, unfortunately. 
but it is also true that there were there are many um, like feminist activists, women activists who would prefer social media over not just prefer it's just sometimes more practical because uh, organizing anything in Lebanon can be very complicated for uh, sometimes security reasons, but more often than not, just literally practical reasons. Uh, you know, we joke about this a lot, but traffic is a very bad, uh, it's a very serious problem, and there's no public spaces, and it can be quite difficult to actually organize. Um, I don't know if this actually answers the question. It's, it's, it's difficult, <laughs> but it is, social media can be made to, to good use. It is also true, uh, uh, and I've experienced this quite a lot, that, you know, men can, uh, they would want to uh, show their masculinity, let's put it this way. Uh, in an aggressive and violent way uh, via death threats and that kind of stuff. So that happens as well, so that's nice. Uh, but yeah, I mean, both good and bad, I guess. Um, just just to add on, on that point, I mean, there are uh, increasingly spaces in which I find it interesting that men and women are having conversations about gender roles in a way that you just don't have them happening offline. And for those of you, do you know LM Arabic? Yeah. Yeah. Love matters. Yeah, it's 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 an interesting lmarabic.com is an interesting space in which you do have really frank discussions about masculinity now and men who are questioning traditional traditional roles and then having a dialogue uh, dialogue with, with with women. But again, it's a privileged space because in in Egypt in particular, do you have access, for example, and do you have the privacy? Um, to, to engage in those discussions even uh, online. Um, in terms of the limitations of the interviewing, of course, I mean, there's always, there's always social desirability uh, bias. Having done this survey now in about 30 countries, we do have the experience that we think that we are getting closer to something which approximates the truth by having men speak, speak, speak to men. We have had one <laughs> survey in which there was women who spoke to, to men and men who spoke to women, and the results were um, unexpected. To, 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 to say the least. Um, in order to, and you're, you're absolutely right, it's a really good point about, you know, as you present yourself as an interviewer, are you creating expectations of masculinity as well? Um, we take our interviewers through a very lengthy training. So in the case of Egypt, they were trained um, for uh, up to three weeks. Uh, and so they understand about gender, they understand about masculinities, they're taken through their paces in terms of questioning their own prejudices and their own stereotypes. Um, also, we were very careful in the language of the questionnaire. So uh, the, the questionnaire was actually uh, administered in four dialects to really connect with people in the field. And very often, I mean, in, in, in Upper Egypt, for example, we had people from Upper Egypt who were speaking. We never have people from the same communities Talking because again, there's always the concern. It's a it's a small world anywhere. So we do try to we we take into account those uh, limitations and we do try to uh, address them. But again, it's not perfect. It's household serving, which is why we do the qualitative research as well because there we can start to address the questions in in, in, in greater detail. But thank you. That's an excellent question. Um, in terms of the organizations, so as I mentioned, it was our partners who suggested all these new um, all these new. Uh, uh, these new topics. Um, and in terms of the presenting, the presenting the data is interesting. So we have this uh, regional, regional report, um, but each country is also producing their own national report. And in that report, they have complete freedom to present the data as they choose. And so in Palestine, they will be talking extensively about the impact of occupation because that's what matters to them. And that's the angle in which they want to look at gender relations and masculinity. And you know, whenever we do these surveys, we give our partners that, 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 free, that freedom so that the 
the, the, the findings will have the greatest impact for their own society. So we do try to uh, strike, that, strike that balance. Um, in terms of the excellent question about how far can you go if you're talking about gender rights, if you're not talking about the bigger picture of human, human rights, uh, economic, political, uh, social, and, and cultural. And it's, it's a pity that uh, Madawi is not here today because one of the interesting discussions we could have is what does it matter if women can drive in Saudi Arabia if uh, the rights of millions of Yemeni women are being and men are being violated on a on a minute by minute basis. So yeah, absolutely, it is it is often the case in our region that women's rights. I mean, it's what I you know to put it bluntly, it's women's rights whitewash that often change is done and it looks shiny to the to the West, but actually there's some fairly fundamental inequities uh, that are just swept uh, under under the carpet. Um, I, do, I do think absolutely the economic dimension is a little easier for us to address in a number of our countries because it is of concern to, to governments uh, as, as well. And um, I mean the reality is, is that in, 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 in high unemployment situations, you know, how far are we going to get with sh trying to shift men's, men's attitudes towards women in particular in the workplace if they feel that it's their domain? Uh, and it's a tricky, it's, it's, it's a tricky one. Um, there's work going on now, um, uh, to give you an example, in Egypt of an NGO called Ahead of the Curve uh, that is actually going now into workplaces to try to talk not just to women about empowering them within the workplace, but also talking to men as well to try to understand, to try at least give them a voice. Even if you can't change their ideas, at least get them to talk, which is, is, which is, a, which is a start. Um, on the political side, so you know, clearly we're, we're talking a lot about the impact of economic stress on men's sense of self. You know, we, we are not addressing, except with the exception of Palestine, the political pressure that, that, that men are under and the emasculation that many men feel in these you know, top-down dictatorial systems. And we're not doing that because the governments won't let us, basically. And, you know, in many cases, we need to have government approval to get into the field, and the government does not want, to want us asking questions. In one country in particular, our report was blocked because we asked questions about, do you fear for your, for your safety? And this was perceived to be security and state security. And the government was very anxious about that, and it took a lot of negotiation to try to even get that through. But absolutely, this is an impartial, imperfect view. Um, but it's a start, as Joey said. And, and, and really, the, the work is done here so that it will encourage others to take it, to take it forward. And I'm going to mention one person here, although she might be embarrassed if I do so, but Farah Ghanem is here in the audience. Um, she's a professor at Swarthmore University. And when I talk about building upon the work of others. Farha did a fantastic, one of the best ethnographic studies of masculinity in Egypt, to live and die like a man. I recommend it to everyone. It really is a wonderful, it is really the nuance to the numbers that we're, we're, we're showing here. Um, so yes, it's, it's, this is all a work in progress. If I, if I can just add something quickly. Um, as far as Lebanon is concerned, but I'm, I mean, I'm pretty sure it's the same pretty much everywhere in, in the Arab world. Part of the problem is that you have a the NGOization of movements, of activism in general, of politics, you can say. Um, so the, the, the changes in laws that I mentioned were largely um, thanks to the effort of groups like Kafa, like Abad, like other uh, NGOs of that type. Um, Abad, for example, uh, that they did one campaign um, uh, against uh, this, uh, the marital rape uh, law thing that I mentioned. Uh, and they, they hanged, uh, you know, white uh, wedding dresses, I think, if I'm not mistaken, um, in Rausche. Um, 
this this campaign was partly funded again if i'm not mistaken by the government of japan by the uh, foreign office of norway i think and usually that tends to come with some strings attached in this case i think it was quite fine because they wanted to do this anyway but in other examples there would be limits to how much how far you can go and so it's just out of practicality that they essentially focus on step by step programs which unfortunately are obviously never enough but um you know other than actual political reforms that's the best they can do for now Great, thanks for the insight. William Jenkins, uh, Economic History at LSE. I wanted to ask, uh, Shireen, particularly on your early slides, you mentioned honor killing, honor based violence, and then promptly switched to domestic violence and that through the frame of the images survey. Um, back in Australia, we have horrific rates of domestic violence, but the minute there's a Middle Easter involved or it's in the Middle East for the same thing, it's honor killing. Mm -hmm. how, does that, how does that play out through the through the, um, the data and so on, and then also socioeconomically in the data and also other experiences in other countries. The Kuwait example is interesting, but the socioeconomics within, within some of those countries, what, what, what sticks out there? Mm -hmm. oh, do you want to pass it to Hi, um, I'm Katie. I'm doing a master's here at the LSE in development. I'm quite interested in, you were talking about a gap between attitudes and actions amongst uh, Syrian refugee men um, it's quite interesting saying that women, it's actually easier for women to get sort of small jobs and um, men are kind of left in the home. Sort of to what extent do you think that gender roles are actually changing or reversing amongst um, refu displaced refugees, um, Syrian refugees? Thank you. Thank you so much for the seminar. Um, I'm Chen. I'm an international affairs student from the George Washington University in DC. So uh, I have a question specific to Lebanon. So uh, Joyce uh, and also uh, Dr. Fakis um, studies remind me of um, Professor Lara Deep's studies on Lebanon. So I have some question regarding uh, images um, survey in Lebanon. Um, have you noted any um, like a big Disparities between, you know, uh, Beirut and also the the South Lebanon and the the Northeast Lebanon bordering Syria and also, you know, the um, um, the the South suburb of Beirut. Do you, have you noted any disparities, um, like uh, distinguished disparities? Um, my name's Liz Pearson. I'm doing a PhD in War Studies at King's. Have two questions. One was regarding the survey. Did you disaggregate for um, faith and for socioeconomic, um, for income, and did you find any interesting results within countries or, or across faiths across countries? Um, and this, this term gender equality, when people were discussing that, were they framing that in, in terms of internal discussions that were raised nationally or pan-Arab discussions about gender equality, or were they framing this in terms of discussion about the West and perceptions, did perceptions of the West and gender equality come up? And that's also relevant, I guess, to thinking about Lebanon for Joey. Thank you. Uh, who wants to start? Do you want to start, Joey? Yeah, you have more questions. Um, well, actually, I might like to turn the Lebanon question over to you, because actually, you, um, I'm not, and I don't have detail on the Lebanon. Is it refugees? No, no, it's not refugees, actually, the regions. 
Um, I'll, 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 I'll bring you in later. Okay. Okay. So, uh, sorry, just internal consultation here. Um, okay. So, um, yeah. So, on the, on the William, socioeconomic uh, data, and also picking up on on your point uh, uh, as well. Um, so, we, we did see some surprising findings vis-a-vis uh, -vis the the wealth. So, when we looked at men in particular, education made a difference. For, for men's attitudes and often their practices. We didn't find a very big difference urban-rural at all. We didn't, we didn't find great disparities uh, there. Um, and uh, wealth didn't really make very much of a difference. But what we, we, where it was striking, actually, was when it came to sexual harassment, in particular in Egypt. Because what we found is that um, more education actually, actually made, made, made it more likely that men would commit Sexual, sexual harassment. And we were very surprised by this. And so we, up, really up to the secondary level, so we found that the highest rates of sexual harassment perpetration were among men with secondary school education. And it's interesting, we, we thought something had gone wrong in the data. So we actually talked to some uh, researchers in Egypt. You know, there's been quite a lot of research in Egypt, uh, including quantitative surveys on sexual harassment. And it's very interesting because they went into their data sets and they found exactly the same thing. And they said that we had never thought to look because we had assumed that it would actually be a less a, a disadvantaged men um, who would be more likely to engage in, it, engage in that. Um, so, yes, yeah, so there were surprising findings and some surprising findings in terms of economics. But generally, I mean, without wanting to engage in homogenization, I mean, there really wasn't a huge range of difference in, in, amongst, amongst these men, particularly the younger, particularly the younger, the, the, the younger men. Um, in terms of the, the gap between uh, attitudes and, and actions and, and uh, gender, gender, who, yeah, hi, uh, gender roles uh, changing, um, I, I would direct you to our Images Mena website because we have the qualitative study that was done amongst Syrian refugees by Abad, which is uh, one of the very few NGOs in our region that works specifically with men and boys on gender equality, and that has the in-depth interviews and the focus group discussions in detail. But what I would see gen say generally is that um, <coughs> it, is, it is true that the men are forced to, they're, they're doing more at, 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 at home. Um, they're not happy about it. They really do feel emasculated. The, the, the women talked about higher rates of domestic, of domestic violence, um, and they attributed this to the men feeling, uh, uh, feeling frustrated uh, with, the shifting, with the shifting roles. In terms of, you know, will it last? Will it stick? Uh, will, you know, time will tell. But in studies which have been done looking at uh, migration uh, in the region, so what happens to gender uh, relations in Egypt, for example, when men migrate for work to the Gulf and then come back? Uh, and we do have, we actually have questions about that in our survey. Uh, when we, we asked who made decisions before, decisions about various aspects of household uh, life uh, before, before and after migration of the man of the house. And basically they're saying that during the, during the migration, period of migration, women do have a little more leeway, but most women said when the men come back, it goes back to, it, it reverts to the status quo, so it's not, it's not lasting. It's not going to stick unless something else is done, basically, uh, to, to, help in, to, help, to help sustain these, these, shifting, these shifting roles. Um, in terms of, sorry, but I told him about honor. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, so, so I, I haven't presented the data. It is in the, in the, in the study. Um, we asked if uh, people had heard of honor crimes in their community specifically, and it was actually really high. We were, we were surprised, 10, 20, 30 percent in some cases, if people had heard of an honor-related honor violence. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting. Uh, most men and women thought it was unacceptable, really. Um, but again, there's always that, that social desirability bias to a certain extent. And, and, um, but it, 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 and certainly questions, we ask questions particularly. A lot of the questions we asked around laws related to laws that are currently on the books, so again, to help people on the ground to push for change. And we asked about the marry your rapist uh, clause. And it's really interesting. So um, most men thought that was really not a good idea. Uh, that a woman should marry her rapist, but in most of our countries, the women, the majorities of women said, yes, we think it should happen. A, a woman should marry her rapist. And, and there are some very clear and rational reasons why they would argue that. Um, but the data is all there for you to, uh, for you to explore. Um, in terms of the, and sorry, this is very sporadic responses. In, ter in terms of the disaggregation of the data, yes, it's all there by socioeconomic. Uh, background. Um, we did ask questions in three countries about uh, religiosity using the standard religiosity scale that's been uh, translated into Arabic and adapted, um, but we, we haven't reported, we haven't analyzed based on, on that, um, but it's, it's something that we would, we would, look, we would look towards um, uh, move, moving ahead. Um, on the gender equality, um, you know, even the word gender, I mean, gender, I mean, it's, 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 it's a foreign, it's a foreign word. It, our survey in, in Arabic talks about, uh, so, you know, equality between the sexes. And we never, we, do, we don't use gender, we don't use gender equality. We don't use the term gender ever in the, in the survey. And again, it was, the language was tested. So this survey is piloted as well to see how it's going to play. Uh, in communities before we take it to the nation. Uh, and so we're very careful about using the language that really resonates with the uh, local the local communities. Uh, and so it never came up in, so it, it, those sort of pan-Arab versus national wouldn't come up in, in, in the household survey setting, but it, it really didn't come up in the focus group discussions either because we didn't frame it as such. We framed it as, you know, endogenous local relations between men and, and women, we tried to keep the rest of it out. Um, have I missed any, anyone? Oh yes, uh, the question about uh, Lebanon and the, 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 the data. I'm afraid I don't have that level of, of detail. We've just published the Lebanon uh, country survey um, and it's available on, on, on the website and, and Joey very helpfully, I think you, you quoted. You, you quoted from it. Um, but I'm going to defer to Joey, who clearly knows Lebanon far better than do I, about these uh, potential disparities in the regions. Um, so, yeah, I mean, as you, as, you, as you said, Lebanon is, I mean, usually we call, we call it like many countries in one, and it does, it, it can change a lot. I, I haven't, the data, as she said, has just been released, so I don't actually, I cannot tell you for certain. I would... I would assume that there is a correlation between education, um, financial ease, and uh, you know being more open-minded, so, so to speak. Um, as for different sects, my my guess is that it would it would not be that much about the sect, about like if you're Shia or Sunni or Maronite or whatever, but about the religiosity within that and how even I would. Again, I'm making an educated guess here, but even how politically active you are within some of the sectarian political parties, 
because you would tend more or less to kind of go all, go with the crowd, and they tend to be highly patriarchal. So that's, uh, that's as far as I can tell from now. It's as as we've mentioned, it's it's quite difficult to get a a one hundred percent accurate. Um, census or survey of pretty much anything in Lebanon. So, yeah. Great. Um, thank you so much. I don't think we have time for more questions, but thanks for being here. And again, I'm sorry that I'm not Madawi. Um, but I, uh, <laughs> but uh, I think it was a great event. Thank you so much. And just um, before we thank our speakers, I just want to let you all know that uh, next week on Tuesday, the 16th, we'll hold another Middle East Center event with uh, filmmaker, academic, and activist Soraya Kaplawi. Uh, we'll discuss the ongoing resistance to urban expansion in Rabat, focusing on uh, tribal lands under contention there. So you can register for that online. Um, but thank you so much, and thank you to our speakers. Thank you.